0: Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of the Highlighter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Icero. This podcast is where you, the loyal subscribers of the Highlighter newsletter, get to talk about your favorite articles on race, education, and culture. I'm pretty excited about today's show. My guest is Claire Green, principal at Impact Academy in Hayward. She's a former U.S. history teacher so she got very excited when she found out that a piece by Columbia history professor, Eric Foner, appeared in Thursday's newsletter. The article is titled, Confederate Statues and Our History. Professor Foner is not just one of Claire's favorites, he's one of mine as well. In fact, we both have attended his summer seminar for teachers at Columbia through the Gilder Lehrman Project. Professor Foner focuses on the Civil War, Reconstruction, Slavery in 19th Century America, and is the author of Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. So I decided to email Professor Foner to see if he would agree to being interviewed. I was not surprised when he said yes. Here's Claire interviewing Professor Foner. Let's get right to it. Hello, Highlighter.
1: Listeners, my name is Claire Green. I'm the new principal of a high school in Hayward, California, where I spent the last six years teaching U.S. history. While I taught there, Highlighter curator Mark Isero was my coach, and a frequent topic of our coaching conversations was a mutual favorite historian of ours. Last week, as we were chatting about how cool it was for Allison McManus to interview Zoe Carpenter on the Highlighter, I joked with him that I would love to chat with Eric Foner about his recent New York Times op-ed entitled Confederate Statues and Our History. Mark being Mark, he emailed Professor Foner, and so here we are. I am so pleased to welcome DeWitt Clinton Professor of American History from Columbia University, Eric Foner. How are you, Professor Foner?
2: Uh, Thank you, I'm fine. I'm very happy to be talking to you.
1: Um, So let's get straight to it. Let's talk about the article. You okay. open the op-ed, if readers are, are curious, it was, uh, it was published on, uh, on August 20th, and you open the article by critiquing Trump's tweet, in which he complains that the removal of Confederate statues tears apart, quote, the history and culture of our great country. And throughout the article, you find fault not only with his limited conception of who owns our country, but also our history. And I think from what I understand about your work, much of it has focused on this question of historiography, how the historical narrative is shaped by the time in which it is created. So I wonder how you would characterize America's current understanding of our nation's past, particularly its racial history. Are we getting any closer to getting it right?
2: Probably we are, although it's a long journey. Um, I think, Partly because, uh, you know, I actually uh, uh, am in contact a lot with people who teach in high schools. Uh, I speak at social studies conventions. I run summer seminars for, with, through the Gilda Laman Institute about, for high school teachers. Um, so I'm, I kind of have some sense of what's going on. I, and I guess my point is simply that the teaching of American history is far better now. And I think far more up to date and far more nuanced and diverse and inclusive in schools, at least the people I come in contact with, than it was in the past. Now, of course, that's teaching young people. There's a very large number who learned their history in older modes of teaching and I think uh, still need to Reevaluate a lot of what they learned in school, myself included. They, my, what I learned in high school—it's a long time ago—in the suburbs of New York City, uh, back in the late nineteen fifties. Uh, you know, looking back, it was a pretty limited and uh, quite inaccurate f- uh, portrait of American history. Um, so and then, of course, there has been a lot of focus on slavery and its role in American history, not only in books but in media, the movie *12 Years a Slave* and others, uh, TV documentaries, uh, exhibits at. Um, you know, uh, national park sites and museums. Uh, so, you know, in the places that history is being presented to the public, which includes a lot of places and not just in schools and universities, um, I think a better view of American history is being developed, but I, but there's still a long way to go. I, I think most people don't quite appreciate the power, the, the depth of slavery and its importance in American history, the longevity of slavery. You know, this if you start with the early uh, settlers, the early colonists in the early 1600s, this country was a slave country for a lot longer than it's been a free country. 200 and some odd years of slavery um, is difficult to erase from the national DNA. And then, of course, it was followed by, um, you know, many, many years of uh, segregation and other forms of injustice. So... um, you know, we have a lot of history to try to come to terms with. This is not a question just of blaming people and pointing our fingers and saying, oh, look how horrible our ancestors were. But the um, legacy of that history is in our world today. It's in our streets today. It's in our jails today, in our schools today. And I think we can't understand some of the problems we face without really taking a candid look at our history.
1: Yeah. And I think with Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, it's kind of the argument is that this really is, it's not our history, this is our present, and it's just a continuation of the same things that we were dealing with a hundred years ago at the end of Reconstruction.
2: So I'm glad you Yeah, I I know Michelle's book. I think it's very important. It had a very big readership. It's awakened a lot of people to some aspects of our history. Uh, As a historian, I'm a little cautious about saying what you just said, you know, that, uh, well, we're just back where we were 100 years ago or more. Um, we, The legacy of history is here, but we're in a different society, we're in a different world, and the answers from the past are not necessarily the best answers for the present. Um, but nonetheless, I, I commend her for a book which drew powerful attention to a lot of the injustices which are invisible to many white people who live in, you know, suburban communities and affluent sister elements and you know who don't really understand the um, plight of many non-white people in the country today so um, I give her credit for that and for alluding to history uh, even though I think the history part is not the strongest part of that book Mm. do you want to
1: talk more about that
2: no, I'm not really in to, to, to develop a critique of Alexander. I give her credit. I'd rather talk about my op-ed and other things.
1: <laughs> That's totally fine. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about your idea of, of, like, updating the way that we look at the past. Who do you see as currently doing that important work? Who's doing some good stuff, or who should be more responsible for doing that work?
2: Well, uh, I think a lot of people are. I mentioned before, I think um, – you know, uh, the National Park Service, for example, I have worked with them on uh, planning exhibits at various national park sites, and I think at many places they have really upgraded the presentation of history to make it more complicated and more accurate, I think. For example, at Gettysburg, the most important of the Civil War battle. National Park sites, a whole new visitor center was built with a real, with a much more sophisticated picture of not only the battle itself, which people want to hear about, but what they were fighting about. Why were they? It wasn't just a question of who moved their troops up on this flank. It was what were they fighting about in the first place. And we put, um, you know, slavery at the heart of that. And um, in South Carolina, at Fort Sumter, uh, that park, the uh, National Park Service has really improved the uh, presentation of the causes of the Civil War. And just before he left office, President Obama designated the Buford area of South Carolina for a national landmark related to the history of Reconstruction, which is a very, you know, which is a big step forward. There's no Mm -hmm. national park site today devoted to the history of Reconstruction, which is a very, very important moment in our history. So that's one institution that I think is, you know, making a lot of progress in this area. Um, uh, But of course, it always meets resistance. You know, one of the things I find striking and uh, puzzling in a certain sense is that, um, you know, today, it's funny, the civil rights movement has been more or less... Absorbed into a kind of mainstream view of American history. Everybody celebrates the Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin Luther King's birthday, you know, is a national holiday, of course. Uh, the Civil Rights Movement has been somewhat. Um, Domesticated, what we hear about is not the radical edge of the civil rights movement. We don't hear about King, the man who said, you know, we have to really redistribute wealth in this country. We hear about the King at the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, which is fine. But but my point is that uh, people are willing to say the civil rights movement... um, really was necessary because of the grave injustices that black people were facing up to that point. Uh, But when you talk about slavery, people get very defensive. And that's a long time ago. And there isn't a single person in the United States today who... um, owned a slave, right? They're all kind, and there isn't a single person who was a slave in the United States alive today. Uh, nonetheless, if you talk about slavery, people feel like it's a personal affront. I lecture a lot to non-academic audiences, and when I say slavery was the fundamental cause of the Civil War, a lot of people object. Even It's not like, you know, as if I'm accusing them of something. None of those people fought in the Civil War. But um, there is a reluctance to accept the centrality of slavery in much of American history, maybe because it cuts so deeply against a kind of national ideology and national mythology that America is, you know, always the land of freedom, uh, an exceptional place where liberty is respected unlike other countries. And um, to emphasize slavery is to, by implication, question, uh, you know, the the view of America as the Empire of Liberty, as Thomas Jefferson called it,
1: So I think there's a I agree with you, and and I even see that sometimes coming from my students who are in California and and usually have very little connection to like kind of the southern view or or that the the old version of the old view of reconstruction. Um, and so I wonder what are the what are the moves that you see teachers making? What are the right things to start to correct that history?
2: Um, well, I'm impressed by the teachers I come in contact with, which are many. Now, of course, they're sort of a self-selected group—the teachers who are willing to spend a week at Columbia University in a seminar that I'm running, spending mm-hmm. every day to, to reading about and talking about Reconstruction. I mean, that—you know—that's a commitment. Maybe people would rather be on vacation in the summer. I don't blame them, but. Um, You know, I think uh, showing, particularly for Reconstruction, which I have devoted a lot of my scholarly career to, uh, showing the relevance of it to the present. I'm not saying that that's how all history should be taught. History is its own world. It's not just the present. But Reconstruction is really related to the fundamental issues we are facing in our uh, politics and society today. Who should be a citizen? That's a Reconstruction question. You know, who should have the right to vote? That's being debated in many states today, but that's a Reconstruction question. What are the relations between the federal government and the state governments in terms of protecting the rights of citizens? That's a Reconstruction question. How do you deal with terrorism? You know, Reconstruction is a period of terrorism. I'm not talking about Osama bin Laden. I'm talking about the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that, uh, homegrown American terrorism. Uh, so you can't think about American America today without knowing something about reconstruction and I think if you can persuade students that that is the case they will become interested in it in a way that maybe they weren't uh, previously.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I also I um I'm one of the self-selected people who went to your seminar and I enjoyed it right. very much. <laughs> so, yeah, two years ago. It was it was wonderful. Um Well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I love how much you talk about historiography with the teachers that you work with, and I know that you do a graduate-level course, and yes. I also would encourage other teachers out there, and I wonder if you could talk more about bringing historiography into the high school classroom because it is. it would be very important.
2: good to do that. Of course, I think the AP test has now introduced some historiography uh, in a small way into their test, which is a good thing because it'll get teachers of AP classes thinking about it. I mean, right. if you say historiography, people's eyes glaze over, right? It's not, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, if you say, hey, I'm going to talk to you about historiography, they head for the doors. But, um, it sounds pretty boring, but in fact it 's fascinating, and it 's really what the, is the way in which history changes over time, and why yeah. uh, Oscar Wilde you know said somewhere the only, the only thing we owe to history is to rewrite it, and people have been write, are always rewriting history there 's nothing unusual about that there 's nothing pernicious about that, mm-hmm. but the tracing out the ups and downs of historical interpretation. Is a very good window into the ups and downs of American society, and how you know general points of view, general political points of view at any time affect the writing of history, and vice versa. How historical interpretation can actually play an important role in social reality. I mean, the old view of Reconstruction as a you know time of misgovernment, corruption uh, caused by ignorant black people uh, was an important. Uh, Element in the justification of the Jim Crow South. You know, the failure of Reconstruction proved, quote-unquote, that black people should not have the right to vote, and therefore the South taking away the right to vote from blacks was justifiable. That was based on an interpretation of history. So, um, you know, I think once you understand that history is not just an unchanging collection of facts, but a set of interpretations or an ongoing... Discussion about the past, uh, then I think people can find that very interesting and, and say, well, how did a previous generation think about this, and why did it change? Why do we today um, have so much work, very important work being done, for example, on the history of women in America? When I was in high school, there, I, mean, I think the only woman in the textbook was uh, Abigail Adams and then maybe Eleanor Roosevelt. That was about it. Uh, How come today we now emphasize the importance of women in America? Is that because we suddenly discovered a box of notes in someone's attic and said, wait a minute, there were women back then too? No, it's just what we consider important has changed. What we consider significant to our own society has changed, and therefore the questions we ask about history have changed. So those kinds of issues... Uh, what historiography is all about, and I, you know, I find it fascinating, and I do emphasize it a lot when I um, when I teach.
1: Yeah, um, it's driving me nuts that I can't think about it right now. But when you were talking about how it, there's there's actually like, when you were talking about the women, you can you can trace the 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 years when the narrative changes about women, and you can do the same thing with our racial history. It's basically the civil rights movement. Once we start to get more and more African-American historians, and the public is, is more sympathetic, and, and the white public is more ready to hear right. these things. The history kind of catches up to it. And it's driving me nuts that I can't think about it, but I'll, I'll ask Mark huh. to include it.
2: So well, yeah, I mean, I agree whole... with you. I agree with you entirely. I mean, and the, you know, here's a sad fact. In my entire life, I never had a woman history teacher. Uh. In high school, in college, in graduate school. When I was a graduate student at Columbia University in the 1960s, we had about a 40-member history department. There was one woman professor, Professor Garsoyan, who taught the history of Armenia, which was not a subject I was studying. but. You know, now, probably half the faculty, I'm not counting them up, are women. We have many important women scholars of all things. And they're not just studying women's history. They're studying all sorts of things. Right. Uh, But it changes the dynamic of the presentation of history if it's not just all men.
1: Right. Well, we're just about out of time. I really appreciate you talking to me. I saved this last question just because... I love that you're in conversation with high school teachers, and so just big picture, uh, you're talking to a lot of teachers right now. What is one thing that you hope for from your undergrad students? How can we best prepare them and get them ready to send them off to you?
2: I think there are two things. One is, and of course I know a lot of teachers are doing this, one is that history arises out of the documents, the primary documents out of research. You know, and if you want to think about history, eventually you've got to get into the documents of the period, not just books about a period. And it's very exciting to do that. And no matter how many people have looked at them before, you can find new things in important documents uh, if you read them very carefully and then the other thing is what we've been talking about that history is not just a collection of facts it is not just memorizing a bunch of dates and places it is a series of interpretations a series of conversations and uh, it's it's never ending there will never be the one true account of american history uh, if that ever happened then all the subsequent historians would be out of work so um It's an ongoing, and that anybody can contribute to this if they want to, and they want to do the work, and they want to do the research. It's a living thing, not just a bunch of dead facts. So I hope that that kind of insight can inspire students to take a um, greater interest in history.
1: Thank you so much for your time, Professor.
2: Uh, I'm very happy to talk to you, and it's uh, great to see you as one of my alumna from our seminar, uh, moving up to being a principal, so congratulations
1: thanks i'm still figuring a lot of it out but i appreciate
2: it <laughs> well it's uh you have your work cut out for you i'm sure
1: thanks a lot have a great evening
2: okay bye-bye
0: Bye. well thank you claire very much for that great interview with professor Foner, and you're actually right here in the studio claire. here
3: i am in the studio
0: <laughs> it's really cool to be able to talk to you how did it go how did you feel interviewing him
3: Um, I was incredibly nervous. I lost a little bit of sleep the night before preparing and doing my research. I don't know if the listeners know that you actually did give me an opportunity to talk to one of my very favorite authors and kind of, I just really look up to that uh, to Professor Foner a lot. And so you gave me this chance, this opportunity to talk to someone who I admire very much about one of my favorite subjects on earth. Um, And so it was just really fun for me to to get to engage with him about reconstruction and historiography and teaching. It was really cool.
0: I really liked the part where he was making jokes about historiography, but it's totally the thing that I think not just students, but also non-history people probably like even more.
3: I hope so. I was wondering about that, but I feel like my job as a teacher for the last couple years has been to make historiography a thing that is accessible to teenagers. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it was so crazy because we both have gone to a seminar. We both are history folks. And it just happened, and then all of a sudden he was on the show, which I think is totally great. Like, can you say a little bit more about why do you think... Let's say that you're not a history person or a history teacher. Like why do you think he's cool or or important even for sort of somebody who doesn't read history?
3: Well, because I think most folks who would say that they're not a history person say that because they remember history as memorizing facts and memorizing this story that they're not connected to. And where Foner pushes people is to be more critical of the story that's been handed to us and to think about it in a different way, to challenge it and, and to look at all of the different perspectives that actually have been left out of the traditional narrative. And so especially for teenagers, if you can tell them to look at this textbook and tell them that they've been lied to and challenge them to find more truths, um, it's just it's really catching for them, and suddenly they feel like they have an in to history, and uh, and it becomes more exciting for them.
0: And when you did teach U.S. history over the last several years, you've been using the Phoner text and. Can you um, can you just sort of tell the audience like how did you use the Eric Foner text like you did it at the beginning of the year right Yeah,
3: I'm so glad you asked um, because. I uh, My whole Reconstruction unit was on the historiography of Reconstruction, and so we started out with actually using the movie Gone with the Wind as a text, where we looked at a couple key scenes that um, that romanticize slavery and that paint African Americans as the reason that Reconstruction failed and all of these other lies that came out of Reconstruction. And then Foner does a good job in this article called The New View of Reconstruction. Where he describes the different versions of this story that have been told throughout time. And actually, I, was, I wanted to mention on the podcast to, this, to history teachers um, this great resource called History in the Making, which is a collection of excerpts from history textbooks. From different years and so I've used it in my classroom to show them what students from 1900 were learning about slavery and then what students from 1950 were learning about slavery and so they can see how the story changes depending on what year this historian is coming from.
0: That's totally great. It's totally cool. <laughs> I like Foner also because you know as came out in the interview he's a historian who believes in the documents and being a historian. But he also does care about teaching and he cares about teachers. And um, he's always he's always been there sort of for, for teachers. And so you have been a US history teacher but you've also transitioned this year into a new role to be the principal of your school. And so I wanted to ask you about that. You're no longer individually with the students to be able to use more of this kind of text from Phoner, but now you have, like, a different role. How do you see that different role, especially because you love teaching so much?
3: I think... um the reason why I was able to talk myself into becoming the principal is because I love teaching so much. And I want to use that as a lens and like kind of as a motivation throughout my work in working with teachers. Um, and I hope like, I don't know, whatever five-year plan is to make sure that teachers feel really comfortable getting kids to do the hard work of reading for truth, especially in social studies classrooms where so often it can be the sage on the stage lecturing, but like really asking kids to do the work of deciding what's true based on what has been written. Um, and just because I think that will prepare them for the kind of work that Professor Boner would be asking them to do at
0: Columbia. It's great. Um, Claire, thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Mark. Thank you for hooking me up with Professor Foner.
0: And that's it for today's episode of the Highlighted Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Just want to thank Claire and Professor Foner again for such a great episode. If you liked what you listened to, please go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes or leave a rating as well. Five stars is preferable. As you know, this Thursday, there's going to be another issue of the Highlighter newsletter, so check it out at nine ten a.m. And if you have anything that you'd like to share via email, the email is thehighlighter99 at gmail.com. Looking forward to having you back here next week for another episode of the Highlighter podcast.